Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sabadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 12 of this book series and there's 13 volumes. We're actually finishing up volume 12 today where we're studying chapters 51 to 63. Next week, we're going to be starting with volume 13, which is titled Generosity. If you don't have this book yet, you can download it from our website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com. You can read it online. You can print it. You can order a printed copy if you like, because next week we're going to be doing chapters 1 through 10 of volume 13 titled Generosity. You're welcome to read those before class and or after class. And then we come together like this in order to study and I will help you to understand the teachings of the Buddha more closely. Because in the book, there's the words of the Buddha, then there's a reference that goes back to the original Pali Canon. So if you'd like to see what the Buddha was saying before or after that particular excerpt that I have in the book, you can do that. And there's explanations or further information that I've shared based on my experiences as a practitioner and teacher to help you better understand. The Buddhist teachings are very clear, very concise, very precise, but it really helps to have a teacher to share with you some thoughts of reflection and understanding of the teachings that the Buddha is sharing so that you can deeper understand and deeper investigate each of the aspects of the Pali Canon as you're learning that. So today, finishing up this particular volume, we've got 13 chapters to study rather than our normal 10. So we're going to go right into actually studying chapters 51 through 63. And the way that our class works is our moderator, Miranda, will arrange for people to read or Miranda and I will read if there's not others that are willing to uh, read together. And as we read through these chapters, someone will read it so you can learn. Then I will share some teachings with you on that particular chapter. Then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. So as we read, you can be learning here, or if you've read prior to class, you might actually already have questions that you're coming to class with. So whether you've read before and you come to class with questions or as we're reading, you have questions, you can just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and we'll be able to answer your questions during the class. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to all of you and specifically Miranda to guide us through the reading. And then when we get to certain points, I'll share teachings with you and open up to any questions that you might have. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, 
for this first chapter, chapter 51, it's eight pages long. Um, would you mind reading the first four pages, sir? Sure, I can do that. So here, yes. chapter 51, let me just check one thing. There we go. Yep. All right. So chapter 51, it's titled Household Practitioners. And the other title for this particular excerpt is when one sees one's wrongdoing as a wrongdoing, make apologies for it in accordance with the teachings. An example of King Ajata Sutta, who killed his own father. As I was in that I, for the sake of the throne, deprived my father. Wrongdoing overcame me, fortunate one, foolish, having done wrong and wicked as I was, in that I for the sake of the throne deprived my father, that good man and just king of his life. May the perfectly enlightened one accept my confession of my evil unwholesome deed that I may restrain myself in the future. So this is a king talking to the Buddha about having killed his father in order to become the king. And he's now admitting like, hey, I did wrong here. This was evil and unwholesome thing that I did. So now the Buddha speaks to him and says, indeed, sir, wrongdoing overcame you when you deprived your father, that good man and just king of his life. But since you have acknowledged the wrongdoing and confessed it as is right, we will accept it. For he who acknowledges his wrongdoing as such and confesses it for the betterment in the future will grow in the noble discipline. So here, the Buddha, you can see that even people who murder, he accepts them as students, right? He's not judging people on their past conduct and their past decisions. Instead, he would like to help people that are interested in help and seeking improvement to progress forward in life. So here, this individual is acknowledging his wrongdoing, seeing it as a wrongdoing, shared it with the Buddha, and the Buddha says, okay, you know, you're now working towards future improvement, and because you see this as a wrongdoing and you're working towards this future improvement, now you can actually grow in these teachings and on the path to enlightenment. How to behave towards monks. Monks, whenever virtuous, practicing moral conduct, monastics, come to a home, the people there generate much merit on five grounds. What five? One, when people see virtuous monastics come to their home and they arouse hearts of confidence towards them, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to heaven. When people rise, pay homage, respect, and offer a seat to virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to birth in high families. When people remove the stain of selfishness towards virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great influence. When, according to their means, people share what they have with virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wealth. When people question virtuous monastics who come to their home, make inquiries about the teachings, and listen to the teachings, 
On that occasion, that family is practicing the way conducive to great wisdom. Monks, whenever virtuous monastics come to a home, the people there generate much merit on these five grounds. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, people would invite the ordained practitioners into their home, give them a place to stay, feed them. And then for that, the ordained practitioners are now around and they can then share teachings with the family to help them. So the Buddha is explaining here for household practitioners how to essentially practice the way that is going to improve your life. And here he talks about having confidence in the monastics. He's talking about here uh, paying homage or respect. He's talking about sharing, not being selfish, right? Like sharing offerings like food and water, clothing, things like this. And then he talks about here sharing different things. And this is also connected with asking questions in order to understand the wisdom, right? Because it's not just about sharing things and giving things to the monastics, but it's also about asking questions and understanding the teachings. And all of these things are leading to improved development on your path to enlightenment. He does talk about rebirth here in the heavenly realm, and he talks about rebirth in high families and so forth. He's only sharing this because that's what is the true reality, that as you're doing these things that the Buddha is describing, you're transforming the mind away from craving anger and ignorance, cultivating generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. This is what's going to lead to enlightenment, but this is also what leads to improved rebirth. But remember, the Buddha never taught his teachings as a way to actually produce a rebirth. He's interested in helping you eliminate discontentedness and getting to the point where the mind is actually enlightened. So this would be your very last birth. But the same things that lead to an improved rebirth are the same things that lead to this path to enlightenment. So as he's teaching this path, essentially, if you are falling short of enlightenment for any reason in this life, then it's going to lead to an improved rebirth. So he's not trying to kind of dangle a carrot and try to convince people to do these things in order to get a rebirth. Instead, he's teaching the path to enlightenment because that's what leads to enlightenment also happens to be that what leads to an improved rebirth. An outcast of a household practitioner. Monks, possessing five qualities, a household practitioner is an outcast of household practitioner. A stain of a household practitioner, the last among household practitioners. What five? He is devoid of confidence. He is immoral, unwholesome. He is superstitious and believes in auspicious signs, not understanding gamma. He seeks outside here for a person worthy of offerings and first does meritous deeds there. Possessing these five qualities, a household practitioner is an outcast of a household practitioner, a stain of a household practitioner, the last among household practitioners. So he's basically describing the different qualities of household practitioners in terms of people who have are lacking here. The previous one, he's talking about how to generate merit. Here he's talking about people who are lacking certain qualities like confidence, morality, someone who doesn't understand the natural law of gamma, someone who's looking to make offerings outside of his community. Because if somebody's deeply learned his teachings and they know that his the Buddhist teachings are what's leading to improvement to the condition of mind, then 
during his lifetime when there was all these different communities of people that were sharing various teachings, if somebody knew the Buddhist teachings, they would know that it's his teachings that are leading to improved condition of mind and enlightenment. So they would only be interested in providing offerings to his community. So here what he's talking about is removing doubt from the mind, but somebody who has doubt, they're going to be functioning in this way. They're not going to deeply understand his teachings. So he's not talking down or bad about these people, but he's helping his ordained practitioners to discern what household practitioners are kind of bubbling up to the top. And these are people that you might decide to spend a lot of time to share the teachings with. And then there's going to be other people who are lacking confidence, who are immoral, who are superstitious, lacking an understanding of gamma, who aren't interested in making offerings. And essentially what the Buddha is helping them to see is, you know, it's okay if you don't teach these people because they're not such that they're really in a place to learn. So here he's just kind of helping them to discern that for themselves because a teacher who's sharing these teachings isn't going to be able to teach everyone in the world, even an enlightened being. Not everyone's going to be able to discern that that person's enlightened. Not everybody's going to be interested or willing to learn. So therefore, they might actually struggle through their own ego or through their own craving, desire, attachments, through their own anger, through their own ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And it's important as a teacher that you spend time with students who are deeply interested in learning and seeing that these teachings are the truth through investigation. So here, the Buddha is explaining how to essentially discern that. A brilliant of a household practitioner. Monks possessing five qualities. A household practitioner is a brilliant household practitioner, a gem of a household practitioner, a fine flower of a household practitioner. What five? He is endowed with confidence. He is virtuous. He is not superstitious and does not believe in auspicious signs, understanding gamma. He does not seek outside here for a person worthy of offerings, and he first does meritorious deeds here. Possessing these five qualities, a household practitioner is a brilliant household practitioner, a gem of a household practitioner, a fine flower of a household practitioner. So this teaching is just the opposite of the one that we just talked about, but I kind of incorporated this one into the previous discussion on the previous part of this chapter. Benefits of the act of giving. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. This is the way, student, that leads to wealth. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmin. So here, the reason why the Buddha is explaining this is because practicing generosity leads to elimination of craving, desire, attachment. If you eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, then there will be no longer any discontentedness in the mind, that that will be completely eliminated. But if for some reason you don't get to enlightenment and there's rebirth, that same diminishing of 
craving, desire, attachment through practicing generosity that leads to enlightenment, it also leads to an improved rebirth, either in the heavenly realm or an improved rebirth in the human realm. So this is why the Buddha is explaining it, not as a way to motivate people to give, because remember, he was a member of the royal family. He was very rich, very wealthy at one time, and he left all of that. So he wasn't interested in accumulating wealth because he already had that. Instead, he's guiding people on the path to understand generosity and the importance of giving and sharing in order to train the mind to let go. And it also happens to lead to improved rebirth, but because of the diminishing of discontentedness, through the diminishing of craving, desire, attachment. By eliminating and reducing craving, desire, attachment, this is improving the condition of the mind and improving your rebirth as well, should there need to be rebirth. When unwholesome monks are strong, wholesome monks are weak. Monks, when robbers are strong, kings are weak. At that time, the king is not at ease when re-entering his capital or when going out or when touring the outlying provinces. At that time, Brahmins and householders, too, are not at ease when re-entering their towns and villages, or when going out, or when attending to work outside. So, too, when unwholesome monks are strong, wholesome monks are weak. At that time, the wholesome monks sit silently in the midst of the community, or they result to the outlying provinces. This is for the harm of many people, for the unhappiness of many people, for the ruin, harm, and suffering of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. Monks, when kings are strong, robbers are weak. At that time, the king is at ease when re-entering his capital, and when going out, and when touring the outlying provinces. At that time, Brahmins and householders, too, are at ease when re-entering their towns and villages, and when going out, and when attending to work outside. So, too, when wholesome monks are strong, unwholesome monks are weak. At that time, the unwholesome monks sit silently in the midst of the community, or they depart for other regions. This is for the welfare of many people, for the peacefulness of many people, for the good, welfare, and peacefulness of many people, of heavenly beings and human beings. So here, we oftentimes think that all ordained practitioners must be wholesome. But that's the mind expecting permanence and craving permanence. What you understand during the lifetime of the Buddha and even today is that there's some ordained practitioners that are practicing really well, deeply investigating the teachings, sharing those teachings, for the peacefulness and welfare of many beings. But there's also a certain amount of ordained practitioners who aren't doing that. And this is for the detriment of many beings, including themselves as others. So here the Buddha is essentially encouraging ordained practitioners to be wholesome. And in that way, then there can be strength in the teachings. They can shine in the world. And now more and more people can learn them and improve the condition of their mind and the condition of their life. And then I think this is the last one for me. Ways to eliminate unwholesome people. The perfectly enlightened one told the Brahman, uh, Kata Danta, about the story of the king Mahavajita, calling his chaplain to instruct him on how to make a great sacrifice. The chaplain replied, 
Your majesty's country is overrun by thieves. It is severely damaged. Villages and towns are being destroyed. The countryside is infested with criminals. If your majesty were to tax this region, that would be the wrong thing to do. Suppose your majesty were to think, I will get rid of this disease of robbers by executions and imprisonment, or by confiscation, threats and punishment by sending them away from the country. The disease would not be properly ended. Those who survived would later harm your majesty's realm. However, with this plan, you can completely eliminate the disease. To those in the kingdom who are engaged in cultivating crops and raising cattle, let your majesty distribute grain and food for livestock. To those in trade, give capital. To those in government service, assign proper living wages. Then those people, being intent on their own occupations, will not harm the kingdom. Your majesty's revenues will be great. The land will be tranquil and not overrun by thieves. And the people, with joy in their hearts, playing with their children, will reside in open houses. So here, essentially what this advisor is sharing is that if you just try to punish the people who are doing unwholesome things, uh, this is not going to lead to wholesome results because you're causing harm through this imprisonment, through threats, through confiscation, through banishing them, through even executing the people, right? This is causing harm, and now people are going to be resentful to the king. Instead, the advice that the king's getting, based on the natural law of gamma, is those people are doing wholesome things, support them, encourage them, provide them grain, and provide them capital, provide them the things that they need to continue doing good. Because essentially, this will incentivize those wholesome people to continue to make wholesome decisions. And then there might be other people who say, hey, those people are getting free food. They're getting money from the king. Why don't I do something wholesome for the kingdom? And this is the way to not cause harm in the kingdom, but to encourage the wholesomeness. And this is very good advice for someone who's leading a, a population of people. So I think this is where I turn things over to you, Miranda. Yes, sir. Thank you. The monks of Kosambi. At that time, a certain monk accused another monk that he had fallen into wrongdoing and did not see that wrongdoing as a wrongdoing. <clears throat> he and a group of monks who took part with this monk carried out a formal act of suspension against that specific monk for not seeing the wrongdoing. Then there were also a group of monks who took the side of the suspended monk and sided with him. The community of monks was divided. They could not carry out the observance together. Now at that time, monks, causing fights, causing arguments, falling into disputes in the dining hall in the middle of the house, behaved unsuitably towards one another in actions in speech They came to blows. Having expressed disapproval of them, having given reason talk, the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks saying, enough monks, no arguments, no fights, no contention, no disputing. When he had spoken thus, a certain monk who spoke what was not the teachings spoke thus to the perfectly enlightened one. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, the master of the teachings wait. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, unconcerned, live intent on residing in ease here and now. 
we will be held accountable for this argument, fight, contention, disputing. And a second time, the perfectly enlightened one spoke thus to these monks. Enough monks, no arguments, no fights, no contention, no disputing. And a second time, the monk who spoke what was not the teachings spoke thus to the perfectly enlightened one. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, the master of the teachings, wait. Venerable sir, let the perfectly enlightened one, unconcerned, live intent on residing in ease here and now. We will be held accountable for this argument, fight, contention, disputing. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks, setting Prince Digavu's story as an example. Brahmadatta, the king of Kasi, had done him much mischief. He had killed the prince's parents. As Prince Digavu had opportunities to show his anger by killing Brahmadatta, the king of Kasi, he thought of his father's last words. Do not you, dear Digavu, look far or close, for, dear Digavu, angry moods are not calmed by anger. Angry moods, dear Digavu, are calmed by non-anger. Do not look far means do not bear anger long. Do not look close means do not hastily break with a friend. Thus the life of Brahmadatta, the king of Kasi, was granted by Prince Digavu. Then Brahmadatta, king of Kasi, gave back the prince's troops and eagles and territory and storehouses and barns of grain, and he gave him his daughter. Now monks, if such is the patience and gentleness of kings who wield the scepter, who wield the sword, herein, monks, let your light shine forth so that you who have gone forth in these teachings and discipline, which are thus well taught, may be equally patient and gentle. But none of these monks listened to the perfectly enlightened one. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having dressed in the morning, taking his bowl and robe, entered Kosambi for alms food, having walked for alms food in Kosambi, bringing back his alms bowl after his meal, having packed away his lodging, taking his bowl and robe, and standing in the midst of the community, he spoke these verses. When altogether they shout out, none feels unwise. Though the community is divided, one might think otherwise. With wandering wisdom, the wise one understands all the field of talk. With mouths wide open to full extent, what leads them on, they know not. They who, in thought, argue this, that that man has abused me, has hurt, has defeated me, has me devastated, these angers not calmed. They who do not argue this, that man has abused me, has hurt, has defeated me, has me devastated, in them anger is calm. No, not by anger are angry moods calmed, and at many at any time, but by non-anger are they calmed. This is an ageless, endless natural law. People do not understand that here we are confused in life, in time, but they who herein do understand, thereby their fights are calmed. <clears throat> Criminals who injure and kill, steal cattle, horses, and wealth, who plunder realms, for there is unity. Why should there not be for you? If one finds a friend with whom to go forward, fascinated in the well-residing of these teachings, appropriately, surmounting dangers one and all, with joy go forward with him mindfully. Finding none appropriate with whom to go forward, none in the well-residing fascinated in these teachings, as king quits the conquered realm, 
go forward lonely as a bull elephant in an elephant jungle. Better to go forward one alone. There is no companionship with the unwise. Go forward lonely, unconcerned, doing no evil as a bull elephant in an elephant jungle. Then the perfectly enlightened one, having spoken these verses as he was standing in the midst of the community, approached Balakalanoraka village and the eastern bamboo grove. Along the way, he had met a few of his senior disciples. Walking on tour in due course, he arrived at Paralea. The perfectly enlightened one stayed there at Paralea in the guarded woodland thicket at the root of the Lobesal tree. There was a large bull elephant named Paralea approached the perfectly enlightened one. Having approached, he set out by means of his trunk, drinking water for the perfectly enlightened one and water for washing, and he kept the grass down. Then the perfectly enlightened one set, yes, set out on tour for Savahi. Then the household practitioners of Kosambi thought, these masters, the monks of Kosambi, have done us much mischief. The perfectly enlightened one is departing, harassed by these. Come, we should neither greet the masters, the monks of Kosambi, nor should we stand up before them, nor should we greet them with joint palms or perform the proper duties. We should not appreciate, respect, admire, or honor them, and neither should we give them alms food when they come to us. Thus they, when they are neither appreciated, respected, admired, nor honored by us, <clears throat> will depart unappreciated, or they will leave the community, or they will, will restore friendly relations for themselves to the perfectly enlightened one. Then the monks of Kosambi, as they were not being appreciated, respected, admired, or honored by the household practitioners of the Kosambi, spoke thus, Come now, you venerable sirs, let us, having gone forth to Sabati, settle this moral question in the perfectly enlightened one's presence. Then the monks of Kosambi, having packed away their lodgings, taking their bowls and robes, approached Savati. Then in due course, the monks of Kosambi arrived at Savati. They agreed to stop the dispute. The monk who had been suspended agreed that there was a wrongdoing and he had fallen. Those monks who were taking the side of the suspended one restored that monk. Since monks, that monk has fallen and was suspended. But see, Sees and is restored well then, monks, achieve harmony in the community for settling that case. And thus, monks, should it be achieved, one and all should gather together. If the achieving of harmony in the community for settling this case is pleasing to the venerable ones, they should be silent. He to whom it is not pleasing should speak. Harmony in the community for settling that case is achieved by the community. Arguments in the community are put down. Fighting in the community is put down. It is pleasing to the venerable ones. Therefore, they are silent. Observance may be carried out at once. The training guidelines recited. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, just to encapsulate the story, essentially what this is, is the Buddha is at a place where there's monks, people who are studying with him, and they're starting to fight and quarrel and the Buddha tries to kind of calm them and say, hey, you know, this is enough. And after the Buddha saying that a few times, they still were fighting. And the Buddha just politely picks up his stuff and leaves. He, he delivers these verses, these teachings, where he basically says, you know, everyone who's shouting, of course, none of them feel that they're being unwise because everybody's shouting, everybody's upset. But 
from somebody who has wisdom, they can see that all of this shouting and all this arguing isn't wise at all. So the Buddha just gathers his stuff and, and leaves because his teaching is that anger is never going to produce non-anger, right? So when someone's angry and they're argumentative and they're yelling, there's really nothing you can do there to fix that. That person has to fix themselves. If you're just arguing back out of anger, well, they have anger and you're matching their anger. Now there's just a whole bunch of anger. So the only way that anger is, is reduced is by non-anger, you know, by peacefulness. And that's what the Buddha is saying here, that this is an ageless, endless, natural law, right? So not to argue back. That's very important. And then the household practitioners, seeing that the Buddha left, you know, they're here learning all these things from the Buddha and the Buddha chooses to leave because all these monks are being disgruntled. The household practitioner is like, hey, we don't really like this too much. You know, master teacher Gautama left. Let's not feed the monks that are staying behind that are arguing and let's not, you know, uh, take care of them and then they'll leave too. And that's essentially what happens that the household practitioners end up not taking care of those monks that were squabbling. Because remember, the Buddha teaches to make offerings to virtuous monastics, virtuous teachers, people who are deeply practicing the teachings and sharing those teachings. If there's a group of ordained practitioners who are arguing and yelling and hostile, if they're smoking, if they're using drugs or alcohol, or they're doing things that are not aspects of the teachings, the Buddha doesn't advise to support that through making offerings. So here the household practitioners being very wise realize that these ordained practitioners aren't practicing the teachings closely. And they're like, hey, we're just going to stop supporting them. And then they're going to have to go back to the Buddha and actually solve this issue, talk it out with him and gain the teachings that they need so that they no longer do this anymore. And that's exactly what happens is they all go back to the Buddha and now he teaches them and helps them to understand that arguing isn't wise at all. What questions do you guys have on any aspect of this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, there's a full description here from me on each individual aspect of this chapter. You can see here as I'm scrolling through it. So feel free to read that and let me know if you guys have any questions. And then we'll just move on here to chapter 52. Um, yes, sir. Would you be interested in reading the odd-numbered chapters and I'll read the even-numbered chapters, sir? Sure. Okay, I'll read this one then. Um, mutual support between monks, Brahmins, and householders. Monks, Brahmins, and householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines in time of sickness. And you monks are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you teach them the teachings that are good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, with the correct meaning and wording, and you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and complete purity. Thus, monks, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. Here, the Buddha is describing and helping the ordained practitioners understand that Brahmin and household practitioners are very helpful. And there's this mutual support built in based on the way that the Buddha taught. He taught the ordained practitioners not to cultivate their own food, not to cook their own food, but to only accept things like food, clothing, water, shelter, medical care, and things like this as offerings from the household practitioners. This made sure that there was 
regular interaction between ordained practitioners and household practitioners. Because if the Buddha shared these teachings with the ordained practitioners and they were all getting enlightened and they were continually taking care of themselves, feeding themselves, clothing themselves, and things like this, they would not necessarily have any interest to share these with other people. They would just keep these teachings amongst themselves. But by creating this kind of mutual support where the household practitioners are offering gifts and things that the ordained practitioners need to sustain their life, just basic necessities, then the household practitioners are coming in contact with the ordained practitioners. And now the ordained practitioners are giving back to the household practitioners the teachings. So this is a way that a teacher would uh, structure their life, that they are fully committed to helping their students to learn and practice these teachings. And then the students can then support their teacher to continue to do the work that they're doing. And there's this mutual support between these two groups of people. And this is essentially gamma, right? That with the students supporting a teacher or a ordained practitioners to get deeper and deeper and deeper into their practice, having more time to be able to do that, then as a way of repaying that gratitude and that appreciation, the teacher or ordained practitioner should be sharing teachings that are helping their students to continue to improve the condition of their mind. And in this way, then the Buddha is saying, okay, there's this crossing of the flood, the complete end of discontentedness. This is the way that ordained practitioners can end discontentedness and the way that household practitioners can completely end their discontentedness and get to enlightenment because there's this mutual support. There's a certain number of people in the community that are dedicated to deeply learning and sharing these teachings, and that's their purpose. And then there's people who are dedicated to running the community in terms of businesses and crops and things that are needed to function in the community. And then some of those proceeds that they're, they're getting in terms of food and water, clothing, shelter, and medical care, nowadays we offer financial support as well, can then be shared with the teachers and ordained practitioners because it's those teachings that those individuals are sharing that's helping the household practitioners to continue further, develop their life, and improve their personal and professional relationships. So this is that mutual support that's built in to the way that the Buddha shared his teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? There appears to be no questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to chapter 53, and I'll go ahead and read this one. It's titled, The Unattainable. Monks, there are these five situations that are unobtainable by an aesthetic or a Brahmin, by a heavenly being, Mara or Brahma, which is God, or by anyone in the world. What five? One, may what is subject to old age not grow old. This is a situation that is unobtainable by an aesthetic or a Brahmin, by a heavenly being, Mara, or Brahma, God, or by anyone in the world. And now the Buddha just repeats this by filling in, may what is subject to illness not fall ill, by what is subject to death not die, may what is subject to destruction not be destroyed, may what is subject to loss not be lost. Monks, for the uninstructed worldling, what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, he does not reflect thus. 
I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. For all beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth, what is subject to old age grows old. If I were to sorrow, grow weak, grieve, weep, beating my breast, and become confused when what is subject to old age grows old, I would lose my appetite and my features would become ugly. I would not be able to do my work. My enemies would be elated and my friends would become saddened. Thus, when what is subject to old age grows old, he sorrows, grows weak, grieves, weeps, beating his breast, and becomes confused. This is called an uninstructed worldling, pierced by the poisonous dart of sorrow, who only torments himself. And now the Buddha goes through all these same teachings related to illness, falls ill, uh, subject to death, dies, subject to destruction, is destroyed, what is subject to loss is lost. Okay, then he adds this next part. Monks, for the instructed noble disciple, what is subject to old age grows old. When this happens, he reflects thus, I am not the only one for whom what is subject to old age grows old. For all beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth, what is subject to old age grows old. If I were to sorrow, grow weak, grieve, weep, beat my breast and become confused, when what is subject to old age grows old, I would lose my appetite and my features would become ugly. I would not be able to do my work. My enemies would be elated and my friends would become saddened. Thus, when what is subject to old age grows old, he does not sorrow, grow weak, grieve, weep, beating his breast, and become confused. This is called an instructed noble disciple who has drawn out the poisonous dart of sorrow, pierced by which the uninstructed worldling only torments himself, sorrowless, without darts. The noble disciple realizes nibbana, or enlightenment. And then again, he goes through what becomes ill falls ill, what's subject to death dies, what is subject to destruction is destroyed. What is subject to loss is lost. And then here he sums it up. These monks are the five situations that are unobtainable by an aesthetic or a Brahmin, by a heavenly being, Mara or Brahma, God, or by anyone in the world. It is not by sorrow and grieving that even the least good here can be gained. Knowing that one is sorrowful and sad, one's enemies are elated. When the wise person does not shake in adversities, knowing how to determine what is good, his enemies are saddened, having seen that his former facial expression does not change. Wherever one might gain one's good, in whatever way, by chanting, recitations, fine sayings, generosity, or tradition, there one should exert oneself in just that way. But if one should understand this good cannot be obtained by me or anyone else, one should accept the situation without sorrowing, thinking, the gamma is strong, what can I do now? So what the Buddha is explaining here is the universal truth of impermanence. 
he's explaining that it's not possible for anybody to not age, that every being needs to age, that every being is going to fall ill, every being is going to experience death, every being is going to experience certain things are going to be destroyed, right? Like your car, like your house, certain things are going to get destroyed because of the universal truth of impermanence. And also, you can't avoid losing things. You can minimize it, but you can't avoid this because even an enlightened being, they're going to experience loss in some situations because you can't keep things permanently. And what the Buddha is explaining is that if as an uninstructed worldling, as a non-practitioner who doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence, if every time one of these five things occurs, you are sorrowful, you grow weak, you grieve, you become confused, then this is going to contribute to your detriment and your sadness and uh, you're going to be sorrowful. But if you are instructed and you understand these teachings, the Buddha describes an instructed noble disciple, then that individual understands the universal truth of impermanence. When they age, they know that this is normal, this is completely natural, and all beings are going to experience that. Same thing when there's an illness. Same thing when there's death. Same thing when there's destruction of certain property. And same thing when there's loss. You're not going to be upset and sorrowful when these things occur if you understand the universal truth of impermanence and you've trained the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, you won't experience any sorrow or grief or misery when these things are occurring. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? So, are there any questions at this time, sir? All right, so now we have chapter 54. Four things wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. Householder, there are these four things that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. What for? One thinks, may wealth come to me righteously. This is the first thing in the world that is wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. Having gained wealth righteously, one thinks, may fame come to me and my relatives and preceptors. This is the second thing in the world that is wished for, desired, agreeable, rarely gained in the world. Having gained wealth righteously and having gained fame for oneself and for one's relatives and preceptors, one thinks, may I live long and enjoy a long lifespan. This is the third thing in the world that is wished for, desired, agreeable, rarely gained in the world. Having gained wealth righteously, having gained fame for oneself and for one's relatives and preceptors, living long and enjoying a long lifespan, one thinks, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. This is the fourth thing in the world that is wished for, desired, agreeable, rarely gained in the world. These are the four things that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. There are, householder, four other things that lead to obtaining those four things. What for? Accomplishment and confidence, accomplishment and virtuous behavior, accomplishment and generosity, and accomplishment and wisdom. And what, householder, is accomplishment and confidence? Here, a noble disciple is endowed with confidence. He places confidence in the enlightenment of the Tathagata thus. The perfectly enlightened one is an arahat. Perfectly enlightened, 
accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the perfectly enlightened one. This is called accomplishment and confidence. And what is accomplishment and virtuous behavior? Here, a noble disciple abstains from the destruction of life, abstains from taking what is not given, abstains from sexual misconduct, abstains from false speech, abstains from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. This is called accomplishment and virtuous behavior. And what is accomplishment and generosity? Here, a noble disciple resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in relinquishment, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is called accomplishment and generosity. And what is accomplishment and wisdom? If one dwells with a mind overcome by longing and unrighteous sensual desires, one does what should be avoided and neglects one's duty so that one's fame and peacefulness are spoiled. If one dwells with a mind overcome by ill will, one does what should be avoided and neglects one's duty so that one's fame and peacefulness are spoiled. If one dwells with a mind overcome by complacency, if one dwells with a mind overcome by restlessness and worry, if one dwells with a mind overcome by doubt, so that one does what should be avoided, neglects one's duty so that one's fame and peacefulness are spoiled. One householder, a noble disciple has understood thus, longing and unrighteous sensual desires are a defilement of the mind, he abandons them. When, it is under, when he has understood thus, ill will is a defilement of the mind, he abandons it. <clears throat> when he has understood thus, complacency is a defilement of the mind. When he has understood thus, restlessness and worry are a defilement of the mind. When he has understood thus, doubt is a defilement of the mind, he abandons it. When householder, a noble disciple has understood thus, longing and unrighteous sensual desires are a defilement of the mind and has abandoned them. When he, under when he has understood thus, ill will is a defilement of the mind and has abandoned it. When he has understood thus, complacency is a defilement of the mind. When he has understood thus, restlessness and worry are a defilement of the mind. When he has understood thus, doubt is a defilement of the mind and has abandoned it, then he is called a noble disciple of great wisdom, of wide wisdom, one who sees the range, one accomplished in wisdom. This is called accomplishment in wisdom. These are the four things that lead to obtaining the four things that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, this first part of this chapter, the Buddha is explaining four things that people will typically desire and they really want and they really wish for these things, but they're not necessarily easily gained in the world. And that's wealth, fame, a long life, and to be reborn in heaven. Uh, these are things that the mind might be craving and you might need to train the mind to let these go. You might still pursue a certain amount of income and that's what you need. But if you want to be the wealthiest person in the world, 
or you want to be super rich and super wealthy and you're chasing after that with craving desire attachment it's going to motivate unskillful decisions and unwise decisions which is going to produce unwholesome results so instead the buddha is teaching how to actually acquire these things if it is an interest of yours to pursue these how to obtain them in this middle way that he taught and he says okay the way to accomplish these things that lead to these four things that are oftentimes wished for is to have accomplishment and confidence virtuous behavior generosity and wisdom and then he gives details of exactly how to do these things because with confidence in the buddha he doesn't mention it here but confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in his community, now you're going to learn the teachings that you need in order to then understand the virtuous behavior, understanding what leads to virtuous behavior. Here he's just referencing the five precepts and he talks about these in more detail in the actual five precepts, but there's other moral conduct that he describes besides just these, but this would significantly eliminate a certain amount of unwholesome decisions and unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And then he talks about generosity and practicing generosity because that's going to help to eliminate the craving desire attachment. And then he talks about how to have accomplishment and wisdom. And what he focuses on is eliminating the five hindrances. These are things that I've talked about in other classes. The hindrance of central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness and worry and doubt and if you're able to eliminate those five obstacles or hindrances to enlightenment then the mind can more readily make its way to enlightenment and those are the same things that make your way towards enlightenment and there's the same things that are going to lead to a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of fame or long life or rebirth in the heavenly realm but ultimately your goal is to get to enlightenment not having rebirth in the heavenly realm so this is where he's providing the guidance of how to acquire these four things that are oftentimes very much wished for in life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, appears there are no questions at this time, sir. Okay. So we will go to the next chapter, which is chapter 55. Reappearance in accordance with one's objectives. Monks. I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with one's objectives. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Here, monks, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins. Oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do householders. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives in this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the four great kings are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks, oh, that on the desolation of the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods of the heaven of the four great kings. 
He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, leads to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the gods of the heaven of the 33, the Yama gods, the gods of the Tesetu heaven, the gods who excite in creating, the gods who wield power over others, creations, are long-lived, beautiful, and enjoy great happiness. He thinks that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the gods who wield power over others' creations. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives in this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He hears that the Brahma, he hears that the Brahma of a thousand is long-lived, beautiful, and enjoys great happiness. Now the Brahma of a thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. Just as a man with good sight might take a gallnut in his hand and review it, so the Brahma of a thousand resides determined on permeating a world system of a thousand worlds, and he resides determined on permeating the beings that have reappeared there. The monk thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of the Brahma of a thousand. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives in this residing of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This, monks, is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. So I think there's quite a few here. Rather than reading through all of them, you're kind of getting the general theme of what the Buddha is explaining is that an individual might hear about some other realm or what's going on in those particular realms. And then if you fix your mind on that, developing confidence, this virtuous moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom, then one can essentially progress to rebirth with those beings in, in that realm. Now, this isn't just that you sit somewhere and you dream about, oh gosh, I really would like to be reborn there, and boom, you know, this happens. Instead, what the Buddha is explaining is that it's through possessing confidence in him as the perfectly enlightened one, through gaining this virtuous moral conduct where you're practicing wholesome moral conduct, where you're actively learning and investigating the teachings, you're practicing generosity and you're cultivating wisdom. These are the same things that lead to enlightenment. And it's the same thing that if you fall short would lead to an improved rebirth. So it's the actual work that you're doing in this life around developing confidence, virtuous moral conduct, learning, generosity, and cultivating wisdom that leads to an improved condition of mind in this life and if there's rebirth, an improved rebirth in the next life. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. 
Okay, so we'll move on to the next chapter, 56. Buddhist Saka worship. Then monks, Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, descending from the Vajrayanta palace, raised his joined hands in respectful salutation and worshiped the different quarters. Then Matali, the charioteer, addressed Saka in verse. These all humbly worship you, those first in the triple Veda, all the Katyas reigning on earth, the four great kings and the glorious 30. So who, O Saka, is that spirit to whom you bow and worship? Saka answers, these all humbly worship me, those versed in the triple Veda, all the Katyas reigning on earth, the four great kings and the glorious 30. But I worship those endowed with virtue, those long trained in concentration, those who have properly gone forth with the holy life, their destination. I worship as well, O Matali, those household practitioners making merit, the household practitioners possessed of virtue, who righteously maintain a wife. Matali answers, those whom you worship, my rule, are indeed the best in the world. I too will worship them. Those who you those whom you worship, Saka, the perfectly enlightened one, having given this explanation, having worshipped the different quarters, the heavenly being, King Magava, Suja's husband, the chief, climbed into his chariot. Okay, so here, the real heart of this teaching is right here. This is where, essentially, this ruler of the heavenly being, Saka, is being reported to have basically said that they admire individuals who have chosen to become ordained and who train in concentration and decide that they're going to go forward in this holy life, right? And then they also admire household practitioners who make merit, providing uh, offerings to continue the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha. And they're also practicing this virtuous moral conduct and who maintain a wife righteously, essentially, who is basically not, you know, having sexual misconduct based on the way that it's explained in the five precepts. So here, this is a small little teaching just to kind of help you see that not only would you be interested to perhaps do these things, but also this ruler of the heavenly being Saka is being reported to have said that they also admire people who are developing their mind for concentration and developing these other important wholesome qualities. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, yes, sir. You sort of answered this in your explanation just now. Um, is this meaning to worship as in regarding those beings with respect as opposed to through be like traditional way that we might think of worship? Yeah, I think of this as admire, even though the word that's being translated is worship. It sounds much closer to me as, you know, admire rather than worship, um, like the way we think about going somewhere, maybe singing and praising out loud certain beings. Instead, it's, okay, I admire these beings for their conduct and the way that they are doing things. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, it appears there are no questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we go to 57. Truly favorable and optimistic. 
monks, those beings who engage in wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind in the morning, have a good morning. Those beings who engage in wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind in the afternoon have a good afternoon. Those beings who engage in wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind in the evening have a good evening. Truly favorable and optimistic, a peaceful daybreaker and a joyful rising, a precious moment in a cheerful hour will come for those who offer alms to those leading the spiritual life. So here, this is, of course, explaining that if you're making wise decisions about your bodily conduct, your speech, and your mind, essentially what the Buddha is explaining here is right action is the bodily conduct, right speech is the speech, and then the mind is right intention, right? Having the right thinking or the right thought. If you're practicing right intention, right speech, and right action, you're not causing harm to others, and you're doing that in the morning, the afternoon, and evening, then because you're not causing harm, no harm is going to come to you. So you're going to have a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening because you're not causing harm, because you deeply understand the teachings of this natural law of gamma, and you're not causing harm, so therefore harm's not going to come to you. You're going to have this peaceful day because of the way you're choosing to function. But that requires, of course, an understanding of the wisdom of right intention, right speech, and right action from the Eightfold Path. And then he also talks about here providing offerings to those who are leading the spiritual life, because that's where your understanding of those teachings are going to come from. Without individuals in your community that are deeply dedicated and committed, deeply diligent and dedicated and determined to deeply practice their own understanding of the teachings and, and observe the improvements to the condition of their mind, you wouldn't be able to then learn those teachings so that you could have a good morning, a good afternoon, and good evening. This is how these teachings are sustained in the world by individuals deciding to support certain teachers or certain ordained practitioners that can then deeply focus on developing their practice and then offer those teachings to the rest of the community so that they can develop their practice. And then this is that mutual support that the Buddha talked about where now everybody's being uplifted by learning and practicing these teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? There are no questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we'll go to chapter 58. Right and wrong refuge. They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to parks and tree shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which, you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community for refuge, you see with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge that, the supreme refuge, that is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. All right. Thank you, Miranda. This is a chapter that we've studied in other books as well as some of these that we're studying today. Essentially, what people would experience during the Buddha's lifetime, and we even might see this now, is that when people become threatened by danger, they might have a certain amount of fear and to kind of feel like 
that fear is eliminated or to feel some level of security, people might go for protection to the mountains and the forest, to the parks and tree shrines, certain shrines that they think are going to bring them some kind of protection. Here in Thailand, they will practice animism, which is the worshiping of inanimate objects like trees and water and mountains and things like this, thinking that that's going to bring some kind of protection by making offerings to a tree or offerings to the water or offerings to the mountain or something like that. But the Buddha is explaining here that this is not a secure refuge. This is not a way to get protection. Uh, It's not a supreme protection because going to these kind of things, it's not going to gain you release from discontentedness. You're not going to be able to eliminate discontentedness by making an offering to a tree or making an offering to the water or to the mountain or something else like this. It's only when you have gone to the Buddha, the teachings in the community, that you're going to start to understand the pollutions of mind like craving anger and ignorance in the ten fetters that are leading to the discontentedness in the mind. And all of that starts with understanding with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths. That's the really beginning of the path to establish right view. And the Buddha is saying this is the real refuge, right? This is the supreme refuge. Because if you go to this refuge where you are looking for protection from discontentedness, if you're looking from protection from fear, and stress or anxiety or sadness or anger or frustration, annoyance, all these discontent feelings, you can gain release from discontentedness by going to the Buddha, his teachings in the community, to understand these teachings, practice them, training the mind, and then you can eliminate all discontentedness. And that's the real supreme protection that the Buddha is talking about, because that's what a refuge is, is it's a protection or a shelter, protection from danger and distress. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so we will go to chapter 59. So this is for me to read. I don't know this word. Uh, What would you say this word is, uh, Miranda? Pacharahani. Pacharahani, okay. The Pacharahani festival in the Noble One's discipline, first discourse. So this is a festival that was being practiced during the lifetime of the Buddha. And here he's going to explain how the, or at least the Brahmin's going to explain how it's practiced within the Brahmin tradition. And then the Buddha is going to explain how he practices it for his teachings. Now on that occasion, on the Upasata day, the Brahmin John Usora, I've not pronounced that correctly either, stood to one side, not far from the perfectly enlightened one, with his head washed, wearing a new pair of linen clothes, holding a handful of wet kusa grass. The perfectly enlightened one saw him standing there and said to him, Why is it, Brahmin, that on the Upasata day, you stand to one side with your head washed, wearing a new pair of linen clothes, holding a handful of wet kusa grass. What is happening today with the Brahmin clan? Today, Master Gotama, is the Brahmin clan's Pukarahani festival. But how, Brahmin, do the Brahmins observe this festival? 
Here, Master Gotama, on the Upasata day, the Brahmins wash their heads and put on a pair of new linen clothes. They then smear the ground with wet cow dung, cover this with green kusa grass, and lie down between the boundary and the firehouse. In the course of the night, they get up three times and with respectful salutation pay homage to the fire. We descend in honor of the respected one. We descend in honor of the respected one. They offer abundant ghee, oil, and butter to the fire. When the night has passed, they offer excellent food and various kinds to Brahmins. It is in this way, Master Gotama, that the Brahmins observe the festival. The festival in the Noble One's Discipline Brahmin is quite different from the festival of the Brahmins. But how, Master Gotama, is the festival observed in the Noble One's Discipline? It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me the teachings by explaining how the festival is observed in the Noble One's Discipline. Well then, Brahmin, listen and attend closely. I will speak. 1. Here, Brahmin, the noble disciple reflects thus. The result of the destruction of life is unwholesome, both in this present life and in future lives. Having reflected thus, he abandons the destruction of life. He descends from the destruction of life. Here, Brahmin, the noble disciple reflects thus. The result of taking what is not given is unwholesome. The result of sexual misconduct is unwholesome. The result of false speech is unwholesome. The result of argumentative speech is unwholesome. The result of harsh speech is unwholesome. The result of idle chatter is unwholesome. The result of craving is unwholesome. The result of anger is unwholesome. The result of ignorance or unknowing of true reality is unwholesome. It is in this way, Brahmin, that the festival is observed in the Noble One's Discipline. The festival in the Noble One's Discipline, Master Gotama, is quite different from the festival of the Brahmins, and the festival of the Brahmins is not worth a sixteenth part of the festival in the Noble One's Discipline. Excellent, Master Gotama. Excellent, Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the darkness so those with good sight can see forms. I now go for refuge to Master Gotama, to the teachings and to the community of monks. Let the Master Gotama consider me a household practitioner who from today has gone for refuge for life. So here there's a Brahmin who's a Hindu priest who is basically standing, getting ready to talk to the Buddha. And the Buddha observed that he's kind of wearing some different clothes. He's done something with his hair. He's got something in his hand. And there's this discussion where the Brahmin explains to the Buddha what the Brahmin are doing as part of this festival. And then he asked the Buddha to explain what he would guide his students to do for this festival. And the Buddha explains that what he's guiding his students to do is to reflect on how destroying life is unwholesome and it leads to unwholesome results. 
that stealing or taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech. These are the first four precepts. Then he talks about argumentative speech, harsh speech, idle chatter. These are also part of practicing right speech and ensuring that one is not practicing those. And then he talks about craving anger and ignorance, the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, the three poisons. And he teaches his students to reflect on these things and how this results in unwholesomeness. And then by learning this wisdom, then of course the natural tendency is to now make different decisions in your life about how you train your mind and how you function in the world when you understand these things as part of this festival. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, people told time based on the lunar calendar. They didn't have the calendar that we have today with 12 months and you know a certain number of days per month. Instead, they could tell time by the lunar cycle and how the moon cycled throughout the, the days and weeks and months that we now consider days, weeks, and months. So as people who lived in the countryside, they would be able to know whether it was time for a festival or a certain holiday or what have you based on this lunar cycle. And even today in Buddhist communities, they will oftentimes look to the lunar calendar for certain aspects of their traditions and so forth. And during this Upasata day, essentially what this is, is this is a time to more deeply focus on learning the teachings and more deeply practicing the teachings. Some communities will do this once a week or a few days a month. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it was anywhere from two to six days a month that students would then kind of doubly focus on certain aspects of their practice. And in this particular first discourse, the Buddha is focusing them on those particular teachings. And now you'll hear in these subsequent discourses where he's also focusing them on other teachings besides these 10. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay. So now we will go to chapter 60. Yes, sir. The Pachirohani Festival in the Noble One's Discipline, Second Discourse. Now on that occasion, on the Uposatha day, the Brahmin Janasoni stood to one side, not far from the perfectly enlightened one, with his head washed, wearing a new pair of linen clothes, holding a handful of wet kusa grass. The perfectly enlightened one saw him standing there and said to him, Why is it, Brahmin, that on the Uposatha day you stand to one side with your head washed, wearing a new pair of linen clothes, holding a handful of wet kusa grass? What is happening today with the Brahmin clan? Today, Master Gotama, is the Brahmin clan's Pachirohani festival. But how do the Brahmins observe the Pachirohani festival? Here, Master Gotama, on the Uposata day, the Brahmins wash their heads and put on a new pair of linen, a pair of new linen clothes. They then smear the ground with wet cow dung, cover this with green kusa grass, and lie down between the boundary and the firehouse. In the course of the night, they get up three times and with respectful salutation, pay homage to the fire. We descend in honor of the respected one. We descend in honor of the respected one. They offer abundant ghee, oil, and butter to the fire. When the night has passed, they offer excellent food of various kinds to Brahmins. It is in this way, Master Gotama, that the Brahmins observe the Pachorohani festival. 
The Pachirohani festival in the Noble One's Discipline Brahman is quite different from the Pachirohani festival of the Brahmins. But how, Master Gotama, is the Pachirohani festival observed in the Noble One's Discipline? It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me the teachings by explaining how the Pachirohani festival is observed in the Noble One's Discipline. Well then, Brahman, listen and closely, I will speak. One, here, Brahman, the noble dis disciple reflects thus. The result of wrong view is unwholesome, both in this present life and in future lives. Having reflected thus, he abandons wrong view. He descends from wrong view. The noble disciple reflects thus. The result of wrong intention is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong speech is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong action is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong livelihood is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong effort is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong mindfulness is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong concentration is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong wisdom is unwholesome. He reflects thus. The result of wrong liberation is unwholesome, both in this present life and in future lives. Having reflected thus, he abandons wrong liberation. He descends from wrong liberation. It is in this way, Brahman, that the Pachirohani festival is observed in the Noble One's Discipline. The Pachirohani festival in the Noble One's Discipline, Master Gotama, is quite different from the Pachirohani festival of Brahmins. And the Pachirohani festival of the Brahmins is not worth a 16th part of the Pachirohani festival in the Noble One's Discipline. Excellent, Master Gotama. Excellent, Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the darkness so that those with good eyesight can see forms. I now go for refuge to Master Gotama, to the teachings, and to the community of monks. Let Master Gotama consider me a household practitioner who has from today gone for refuge for life. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here, this is the same story, but with different teachings. So this happened in a subsequent occasion where now the Buddha is describing the tenfold path. You might understand the eightfold path from the core central teachings of the Buddha, but there's actually two additional steps that are practiced by enlightened beings, and that is right wisdom and right liberation. So it's the eightfold path that leads to right wisdom and right liberation. There's not extra teachings that are needed in order to practice right wisdom and right liberation. These are the results of practicing all the other teachings. So the Buddha here is explaining that this is what he encourages his students to reflect on is essentially the tenfold path because that's what's going to lead one to enlightenment. And just like the other teaching that I read previously, the first discourse, what's interesting to point out here is that this Brahmin essentially becomes a student of the Buddha here in this last paragraph. You can see where this Brahmin decides, okay, I'm going to now be a student of the perfectly enlightened one of the Buddha based on hearing these teachings and understanding the teachings so clearly that the Buddha has articulated to him. He's decided to now 
become a student of the Buddha. So there were certain Brahmin who continued to do the things that they were doing with certain rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship during the lifetime of the Buddha. But then there were others who chose to learn from the Buddha and actually gain more clarity in the teachings and potentially maybe even got to enlightenment. I don't have any teachings at my fingertips where it documents a Brahmin who became a student of the Buddha who ultimately attained enlightenment. But I can only think that there must have been some amount of Brahmin who decided to become a student of the Buddha and ultimately got to enlightenment during the Buddha's lifetime. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we'll go to chapter 61 which is the same structure, the same thing that we've been reading so far, but now there's additional teachings that are being shared here, where it starts out saying, monks, I will teach you the noble, this festival that Miranda can pronounce very well, listen and attend closely, I will speak. And what, monks, is the noble festival, right? So now this is where he's now teaching his practitioners, his students, how to actually practice during this particular festival. And he encourages them to reflect on the destruction of life, to reflect on uh, taking what is not given, that these things lead to unwholesomeness, that reflecting on sexual misconduct, on false speech, argumentative speech, harsh speech, idle chatter, and then craving anger and ignorance. Because by reflecting on these things and deeply understanding what they are and then choosing to practice them, that's what's going to lead to the improvement to the condition of the mind. And this is how the Buddha would look at something that was happening during his lifetime and the way that people were thinking about certain things, and then he would recast it into his teachings so that people would understand in a better way of how to maybe think about that. There is something that I wrote a few months ago where I was talking about the American dream. Right now, I think that a lot of people think that the American dream is to acquire a certain amount of wealth, acquire a house, acquire certain things, a certain wealth, a certain possessions. And I kind of recast that and shared how, in my eyes, the American dream is an improved food supply. Because when I was in America this summer, I found it to be quite challenging to, to find healthy food and to be able to acquire healthy food over the course of my trip. So teachers will may sometimes take something that is happening during their lifetime and recast it in a way that helps people to improve their life. And here the Buddha is looking at this festival and he's now recasting it in a way that people can more readily gain benefit from this holiday or this festival that they're already practicing, but now practice it in a way that leads to true wisdom and liberation of the mind or enlightenment. Any questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? There are no questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now we'll move into chapter 62. The Noble Pachurahani Festival, Second Discourse. Monks, I will teach you the Noble Pachurahani Festival. Listen and attend closely, I will speak. And what, monks, is the Noble Pachurahani Festival? One, here, the noble disciple reflects thus, the result of wrong view is unwholesome, both in this present life and in future lives. Having reflected thus, he abandons wrong view, he descends from wrong view. He reflects thus, the result of wrong intention is unwholesome. 
He reflects thus, the result of wrong speech is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong action is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong livelihood is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong effort is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong mindfulness is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong concentration is unwholesome. He reflects thus, the result of wrong wisdom is unwholesome. Here, the noble, noble disciple reflects thus, the result of wrong liberation is unwholesome, both in this present life and in future lives. Having reflected thus, he abandons wrong liberation, he descends from wrong liberation. This is called the Noble Pachorohani Festival. All right. So the previous two discourses, were, again, were sharing, you know, the Buddha talking to a Brahmin and helping him understand how he guides his students around this festival. But here, these two discourses, we're learning how exactly he guides his students because here he's talking directly to his students. Previously, it was the ones that I mentioned that I read, but here with what Miranda's reading, this is again the tenfold path. And you can learn the eightfold path through the various programs that I share. And then as you develop those, you will ultimately be practicing the tenfold path as the mind attains enlightenment. Any questions on this particular chapter? Um, no, sir, there do not appear to be any questions at this time. Okay, so we'll move to chapter 63. This is the last chapter of this particular book. So chapter 63 is titled Responsibilities of a Teacher. Monks, when a cattle worker possesses 11 factors, he is capable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. What 11? Here, a cattle worker has wisdom of form. He is skilled in characteristics. He removes flies' eggs. He dresses wounds. He smokes out the sheds. He knows the watering place. He knows what it is to have drunk. He knows the road. He is skilled in pastures. He does not milk dry. And he shows extra veneration to those bulls who are fathers and leaders of the herd. When a cattle worker possesses these 11 factors, he is capable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. So too monks, when a monk possesses these 11 qualities, he is capable of growth, increase, and maturity in the teachings and discipline. What 11? Here, a monk has wisdom of form. He is skilled in characteristics. He removes flies' eggs. He dresses wounds. He smokes out sheds. He knows the watering place. He knows what it is to have drunk. He knows the road. He is skilled in pastures. He does not milk dry. And he shows extra veneration to those elder monks of long standing who have long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the community. So I'm going to pause here before I read the rest of this. This is once again the Buddha taking something that people already knew and recasting it into something that is now further strengthened through understanding it through the Buddhist teachings. So during this lifetime, there will be students of his that would understand 
caring for cattle and kind of farming, you see this theme throughout the Buddhist teachings where he talks about kind of everyday life that people would have understood during that lifetime. And farming and raising cattle is something that people would have understood. So now he's going to cast it in a way that helps him to now communicate his teachings based on something that his students already know, like raising cattle. And how is a monk skilled in characteristics? Here, a monk understands as it really is, thus, an unwise person is characterized by his actions. A wise person is characterized by his actions. It is in this way that a monk is skilled in characteristics. And how does a monk smoke out the sheds? Here, a monk teaches the teachings to others in detail as he has heard it and learned it. It is in this way that a monk smokes out the sheds. And how does a monk know the watering place? Here, from time to time, a monk approaches those monks who are learned, heirs to the heritage, experts on the teachings, experts on the discipline, experts on the outlines, and inquires of them. How is this, venerable sir? What is the meaning of this? Those venerable ones then disclose to him what has not been disclosed, clear up what is obscure, and dispels his perplexity about numerous perplexing points. It is in this way that a monk knows the watering place. And how does a monk know what it is to have drunk? Here, when the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata is being taught, a monk gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the teachings, gains joy connected with the teachings. It is in this way that a monk knows what it is to have drunk. And how does a monk know the road? Here, a monk understands the noble eightfold path as it really is. It is in this way that a monk knows the road. And how is a monk skilled in pastures? Here, a monk understands the four foundations of mindfulness as they really are. It is in this way that a monk is skilled in pastures. And how does a monk not milk dry? Here, when dedicated household practitioners invite a monk to take robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines and provisions for the sick, a monk is moderate in accepting donations. It is in this way that a monk does not milk dry. And how does a milk and how does a monk show extra veneration to those elder monks of long standing who have long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the community? Here a monk maintains bodily, verbal, and mental acts of loving kindness, both openly and privately, towards those elder monks of long standing who have long gone forth the fathers and leaders of the community. It is in this way that a monk shows extra veneration to those elder monks of long standing who have long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the community. Possessing these 11 qualities, a monk is capable of growth, progress, and fulfillment in these teachings and discipline. Here, only eight of the 11 factors are shared as these eight apply to generosity and gratitude see the included reference for the entire teaching. So here, the Buddha, in this teaching of 11 qu 
qualities to cultivate, I'm sharing eight of them in this chapter that will help you to understand responsibilities as a teacher, someone who's sharing these teachings and helping others along the path. It's sharing essentially that an individual would understand what is a wise person and an unwise person based on the actions, not just based on words, but observing of one's actions. And then also that when you hear certain teachings, that you are able to explain those teachings as you've heard them and as you've learned them. Then, as you are able to approach others who are more deeply steeped in the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, and they're experts on his actual teachings, that you inquire and that you ask questions and you try to more deeply investigate the teachings to understand things that you currently don't understand. That when you have asked the questions and you understand the teachings of the Buddha, that you gain this inspiration from the meaning, this inspiration from the teachings, this joy when you're hearing the teachings and you know, aha, these are the actual true teachings of the Buddha that are going to lead to further growth and development on this path. It's going to lead to progress on the path to enlightenment. And you can feel the joy of knowing that you're learning that rather than being dull and lethargic or uh, lacking motivation. But instead, you have this motivation, this enthusiasm when you are learning and practicing the teachings and you've heard the Buddhist teachings from someone who knows more than what it is that you've learned. And then in order to be a teacher, somebody would need to deeply understand the Noble Eightfold Path because in order to be a, a really great and wonderful teacher, you need to first be a really deep practitioner. Being a practitioner is the first priority. Getting your own wisdom in terms of these teachings and gaining your own enlightenment and liberation. And the way that you do that is through deeply understanding the Noble Eightfold Path. Because if you are a deep practitioner, then you'll be able to be a very wonderful teacher and guiding other people on this path. But if you don't know the road, if you don't know the Eightfold Path as a practitioner, you wouldn't be able to guide others as a teacher on this path. And the same thing with the four foundations of mindfulness. Understanding the four foundations of mindfulness as a practitioner and practicing them deeply, this would then contribute to being a very well-rounded teacher because you're going to need to guide students in developing their understanding and practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. But if you hadn't done this yourself as a practitioner, you wouldn't be able to do it as a teacher. The way that I explain this is that if you were interested in learning how to drive a car, would you be interested to learn how to drive a car from someone who's never driven a car before? Or would you be interested in learning how to drive a car from somebody who has maybe 15 or 20 years of experience driving a car? And maybe they're even certified to be an instructor in training people how to drive a car. Well, of course, you're not going to take training from someone who's never driven a car before. So in terms of being a very responsible teacher and one who is able to deeply share these teachings for the benefit and peacefulness and welfare of others, you would need to first be a really deep practitioner. And these are some of those teachings that one would need to understand and practice as a practitioner to then be a very wonderful teacher. And then as a teacher, you will most likely set yourself up to receive donations from students because of this mutual support that the Buddha is explaining that this is how the community continues is through this mutual support. 
But what he also explains for household practitioners is that household practitioners should make offerings based on what they're able to offer. But then for the teachers and the ordained practitioners, he also says you should only accept donations to a moderate extent. So for example, if you know one of your students is having big financial difficulties in their life, but yet they're making these enormous offerings to you, the Buddha is basically sharing that perhaps you know, you shouldn't accept that offering or maybe just accept a certain moderate amount of that offering. And this would be to not milk dry, because if you dried out the cow from all the milk, there'd be no milk for anybody, even that person, that household practitioners, if they donate all their wealth and all their money and they have nothing for themselves, this wouldn't lead to their own peacefulness and their own welfare. So it's important that as we become teachers and as we accept donations, that we only do so when we know that a certain household practitioner is able to do that. If somebody makes a big, enormous offering, but you know that they're having difficulties and challenges in their financial life, then perhaps you might consult with that household practitioner and provide them guidance that maybe they should consider whether their offering is ideal for their current situation or not. And then he talks about showing this extra veneration to individuals who have long standing in this teachings and discipline, people who are deeply learning and practicing these teachings and who have been doing so for an extended period of time. He's saying, be sure to have this extra veneration or this extra respect for them because it's their deep wisdom that's going to allow you and all others to deeply learn the teachings and then continue to practice them. So these are eight qualities or eight factors that one would be interested to practice as a teacher if they're choosing to actually be a teacher at any point. And I've titled this chapter, Responsibilities of a Teacher. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. On YouTube, The Middle Way has a few questions uh, related more to children. Uh, they ask, how to practice the teachings on Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays? How to teach kids about Santa Claus when you're among people that are not practicing these teachings? Okay, great. So with Thanksgiving, I think that that's a wonderful holiday to be grateful and thankful, right? To, to generate this uh, generosity in the mind. And also, you know, if we think back, if you're practicing Thanksgiving in America, you know, this goes back to Native Americans who basically were the ones who showed this generosity to help people who are coming to the country to get them established. So there can be a certain amount of loving kindness and compassion that is cultivated around Thanksgiving. In addition to this appreciation, this gratitude and generosity that is oftentimes practiced around that time, also cultivating loving kindness and compassion for all beings. Then with Christmas, I don't suggest that an individual teaches children about Santa Claus because this is actually a lie. And I remember growing up as a child at the age of eight, finding out that my parents had been lying to me all these years. It was very impactful. And with my son, who's now 10, I taught him that there is something called Santa Claus that people teach their children in the world, but this is not true. It's not a real thing. So he knew from the very beginning that Christmas was all about the appreciation for Jesus Christ and Jesus's birthday is when it's celebrated on 
December 25th, even though at that point he had never even been in a church. And I don't think even to, or no, he's been to a church now. But at that time, he didn't really know who Jesus Christ was and what his impact in the world was. I shared with him the true meaning of Christmas, which is to honor and respect Jesus Christ for the life that he lived and what he contributed to the world, rather than this lie about Santa Claus. And I also let my son know that the story of Santa Claus is does seem to be rooted in a real individual that lived at some point in history, but nowadays it's that person is no longer alive. So during the Christmas holiday, this is also a time to practice generosity, to practice gratitude and appreciation, and cultivate loving kindness for the people that are closest to you. This is a way to honor and respect Jesus Christ, if you would like to, since that's what Christmas is about. But teaching children about Santa Claus, ultimately they're going to find out that it's a lie and that you've lied to them. And now you lose your credibility when you're now trying to teach this child not to lie. So it's best to just be honest and open about what the true holiday is. If you've previously taught your children about Santa Claus and you have been lying for a period of time, it would be wise to sit down and explain that to them and let them know that now you've learned some teachings that you would like to clarify some things that you've done in the past and and let them know that you haven't made uh, necessarily wise decisions in the past and that now you're working to improve that because continuing a lie isn't going to produce anything beneficial. Sitting down and explaining the true story of Christmas, the children are obviously going to observe that, hey, you lied to us. So, you know, it's really helpful to show a child some humility that, yes, you realize that you lied in the past. You've discovered that that isn't always wise. And now you're aiming to do better and help them understand mistakes and how you've realized that there's been a mistake here and that now you're working to correct that. And that's a really great lesson because if any parents would like to present this image of perfection, the parents know that they're not perfect. And if you try to present this false image of perfection, then the children get confused. But if you can sit down and have a very humble discussion with your child, admitting to them that you have lied in the past and that now you're choosing to no longer do that and you're making improvements, then that basically helps them learn that they're also not going to be perfect too. And if they can model your same conduct of realizing when they haven't done something wise, admit to it and then aim to do better, that's what you would like to encourage and incentivize with them. And the way that you encourage and incentivize that is model that in your own practice and model that in your own decision making, in your own conduct and show them this humility and that, yeah, I made some unwise decisions in the past, but now I'm choosing to no longer do that. And let's have a discussion about that. And if children currently believe in Santa Claus, they will probably be pretty upset when they hear this, right? Because they have a certain craving and now they're realizing that adults have lied to them. But they'll get over that. You know, they'll transcend that. That discontentedness is impermanent. But continuing to lie is just going to be exposed at some point anyway. When they're 10 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, they're going to at some point find out that Santa Claus doesn't exist. So it's better to do it with a very humble talk with some wisdom and talking about the past and how now it's time to improve our decision-making and ensure we teach what the true Christmas is about, which is honor and respect of Jesus Christ. And now we exchange these gifts as a way of practicing generosity and thanks and 
appreciation and gratitude based on during the life of Jesus Christ when he was born that the three wise men brought gifts to Jesus. And now that's why we exchange these gifts as a way of practicing generosity and training the mind to let go while we're practicing appreciation and gratitude with some loving kindness and compassion. These are great qualities to teach during Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yes, thank you, Sue. Um, mm-hmm. They follow up, and I think that you've um, talked about a few of these things. They follow up with how to apply right view into Thanksgiving. I can connect it with loving kindness. How about Christmas? And how to give children presents without encouraging their craving? Sure. So right view is all about the Four Noble Truths and understanding that any feelings that you experience, either pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, are generated by craving, desire, attachment. That's the cause, the mental longing and strong eagerness. So you can have right view at all times of year. You don't necessarily need to connect that to Thanksgiving or Christmas, but instead just learn that and practice that at all times. And then in terms of giving gifts without craving, it's helpful to as your children are getting gifts that you don't create this big excitement right where oh my goodness you got your favorite toy right prior to christmas you might ask your children you know what is it that you're interested in receiving as a gift for christmas right and they give you this long list of toys and different things that they would like or maybe books and clothes and things like this and then as they share that with you say okay i understand this is what you're interested in receiving but I would like you to understand that it's not possible for you to get all of those gifts. You know, do you understand that? That, you know, I may be able to get you some of these things or one of these things, but getting all of them isn't going to actually be possible. So I would, you know, you have this discussion with them that let them lay out all the things that they want. And the longer the list, the more elaborate the list, the more craving you know is there. And then you need to kind of manage this and helping them see that it's not possible for you to get all these things. Even if you had the wealth to be able to get them all those things, it's not advisable to get them all those things. Because then what their mind ends up learning is that, okay, I give my parents this list and I get everything that I want. It's actually wise to not give a child everything and talk about that long before Christmas so that when it's actually time to open gifts, they're not opening them with the expectation of getting everything because then when they open their gifts and they realize they don't get everything, then they're actually going to be disappointed. So I would encourage giving a few of the things that they might ask for that you're able to uh, share, but then also give some things that they didn't ask for. My grandmother was famous for this. You know, she would give us toothbrushes and toothpaste and things like this, right? These aren't things that anybody typically is going to get for Christmas necessarily. And if the child feels a bit of disappointment when they open the toothbrush and toothpaste, okay, then that's their own craving that's causing that. But if you only give gifts that they ask for and you don't give anything else, then their mind gets accustomed to only getting what they ask for. So give them a few of the things they ask for, but give them a few things that are just kind of like moderate things that they would always use anyway, just kind of like you know, basic necessities that aren't gonna necessarily produce all this excitement in the mind so that there can be some balance, that maybe they get a few toys that, or a few items of clothing or 
other things that they really are interested in getting, but then they get a few things that aren't necessarily even on their list or they even thought about being gifts. And this kind of helps the mind kind of balance things out a bit. And then having that discussion prior to Christmas will really help. And then also having a conversation after the gift opening as well to help adjust any thinking that they might have had expectations of certain certain things that they were going to get. And if you know that they're really having this burning desire for one particular gift, you might choose to not give that to them because of the craving. Maybe wait until New Year's or wait until their birthday and kind of elongate it. If they're having this expectation that they're going to get this one particular gift on Christmas, by you giving it to them, it's just going to maintain the craving and keep it there. But by not giving it to them and maybe giving it to them at another time, this allows the craving to subside and then they might ultimately get that gift at a time they weren't expecting it. It's these expectations, these mental longing and strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment that keeps the mind being discontent. So what you're looking to do is introduce some things like the toothbrush, the toothpaste, not giving them a gift that they might really desire, having conversations before and after to kind of help them to process any kind of cravings that are going on in the mind and help them to not build expectation around what they should absolutely get for any particular gift or Christmas. Uh, Thank you, sir. And then they follow up with how to not lie to kids when people say their gift came from Santa. You can talk with your child and help them to understand true reality and just say that this is kind of a folk tradition or a folk story that has been shared for many, many years in that while you're choosing not to share that, other people still share it and help them to understand the truth that these other folks are just choosing to share this folk tradition and this folk story and that you're not interested in having them go out and tell other children that Santa doesn't exist because that's not their place. So this is what I share with Bailan when I talk to him at different times about Santa Claus. I let him know that there's going to be people in his class and students that he's going to interact with that that firmly believe that Santa exists and that he shouldn't feel that he needs to teach them or convince them that Santa doesn't exist, but instead let their parents choose when is the right time to do that. And I help Byline understand by him sharing that information, their mind may get discontent based on craving, desire, attachment, and then falsely attribute that to him. And then it'll damage his relationship with his friends. So while he understands that Santa Claus isn't true and isn't real and that other people might share with him you know this is from santa he just kind of acknowledges and smiles and he understands the truth and then he doesn't share with other people he just lets people find out on their own yes thank you sir and then uh the i think their final follow-up question how to deal with husband and uh, his family that they might not agree and it might become difficult with religious belief issues, how to think so that I won't become discontent? Sure. So other people aren't going to necessarily agree with your decisions and they don't necessarily have to. But your relationship is with your children and what you choose to teach is going to result in the type of relationship that you have with your child. So even if the grandparents or uncles and aunts are talking about Santa Claus and things like this, 
That doesn't mean you need to talk about it and you need to agree with it. You can share with your child the true story and just let them know that these other people are choosing to continue to share this story, this folk tradition, and it's something that you're choosing not to do because you're not interested in continuing this story and that you would like them to know the truth. Because other people are going to disagree with how you function when you choose to, for example, not drink alcohol. Other people might be trying to push you because of their own craving. You know, come on, just have one drink. You know, we can't drink alone. You've got to drink with us. But you're going to choose perhaps not to drink alcohol and people are going to disagree with this. So if everybody agreed with what we do on this path to enlightenment, then the whole world would already be practicing these teachings and the whole world would already be enlightened because they understand that these teachings lead to the good, wholesome results that they do. But we're in this time and place where you know, there's only a certain number of people who deeply understand these teachings and there's a vast majority of people who don't understand them. So people are going to disagree with what you choose to do and certain decisions that you make. And that's okay. If they disagree, they disagree. But your relationship is with your child and what you choose to share with them is based on what you choose to share with them. You don't need to conform to what other people are choosing to either do or not do. That's not your goal. Your goal is to be a truth speaker, dependable, reliable, trustworthy, one to be relied on. And if other people choose to not do that, then that's their choice and they'll experience the results of that. But at least your relationship with your child is on solid footing and your child knows that you only choose to share the truth and talk about things that are the truth. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. That is all the questions that we have for today, sir. Okay, well, thank you all for joining for this class. As I mentioned, next Saturday, we're gonna be in volume 13, which is the very last book. And we've got about another six or eight weeks of going through that book. And then we'll actually be coming to a close of the Polycanon and English Study Group for this iteration. It's been a whole year and a half that we've been studying the whole entire book series. And then we're gonna restart it on January 28th. And someone can join this program at any time. They don't have to only start when we restart it. But when we restart, we'll start back over at volume two. And for a whole year and a half, we'll go through all the books again the way that we did in this iteration of the group learning program. On Sunday, which is tomorrow, in the group learning program, we're going to be studying part of that retreat series, the Harmony in Relationships. And there, the class that I'll be sharing is how to eliminate attachments to those who are closest to us. Because when we have attachment in our relationships, then there's going to be discontentedness. By you learning how to eliminate attachment to those closest to you, then you can get to peacefulness and joy, contentedness in all your relationships. But as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in your relationships, you're going to continue to experience this roughness in your relationships, this discontentedness, either on your part and the other people may be discontent too. So what I'm going to teach you in tomorrow's class is how to eliminate your attachments in relationships so that you can be more peaceful and more joyful, ultimately getting to the point where there's no discontentedness in any of your relationships whatsoever. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So thank you all for joining. Perhaps I'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time.
สวัสดีครับ Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com/supportbuddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. <laughs>